Pulp Fiction covers themes that may not be suitable for all listeners. Episodes may feature true events tied into fictional stories. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Story One of Pulp Fiction, a podcast by Public. This is Salt Creek, Episode Eight. Kathy awoke with a gasp. She could hear the banging of footsteps from afar and a thumping whir. Like the sound of helicopter blades, she was back. She was on the ground. Coria was slumped across her legs. She looked down at him. He was still out cold. Sweet dreams, Cory. A voice that wasn't quite hers whispered. Sometime later, at the hospital, Kathy was being seen to by a doctor. From where she sat, she could see Corey still asleep. Inside Corey's head, he still hadn't made it past the world of grey. In a swirling mist of darkness, he could just make out a series of darker shapes, slowly taking form around him. In the distance, he spotted something a yellowish-white. From his vantage point, it was just a pinbrick, but as it came closer, gliding and bobbing up and down slightly as it approached, he realised it was a car. It bared down on him, the rest of the world solidifying around it as it picked up speed, a cloud of dust billowing out from its rear tyres. Corey was on a gravel track, not standing entirely. The world was dark, not completely invisible, but definitely there. He could see the outlines of trees around him as the car approached. He tried to move off of the track, out of the path of the speeding car but his brain wouldn't communicate with his legs and he realised he couldn't move. He wasn't tied up, nor was he paralysed. He was just not there, but also there, an outsider looking in. A spectator. The car kept speeding towards him until he could see the hood. It was a long, maroon, a muscle car. 1970s, perhaps? It was almost upon him and he tried to brace himself for impact before realising he couldn't. His mind began to race before a calm flooded over him from above like a silk sheet. This is a dream, he reasoned, as a car passed right through him. He saw glimpses of the engine, rotors, spinning belts and gleaming chrome, until he heard a whoosh and felt a pull. Suddenly he was in the back seat of the car. The car's seats were a fresh vinyl, the same light yellow as homemade butter. The interior smelled new, fresh, strange for an older car. He was watching from the back seat and in the driver's seat sat a man with a blonde mullet. In the passenger seat next to him sat a man with light brown hair, beady eyes and a large accented nose and chin. You know where we're going? Asked the brown haired man. Yep, just down here a little further. They hang around the toilets like fucking flies, replied the man with the blonde mullet. 
The brown-haired man gave two sharp nods with a little smirk on his face. He shuffled in his seat, rubbing his wrist across the erection he was trying to hide. He was excited. The car drove down the track a little further before coming to a toilet block on the side of the road. Trees were just visible through the darkness. The charger pulled in behind a group of other cars, a white Tirana, a flashy red Mercedes, but no one was in sight. The queers have scattered, muttered the blonde mulleted man, scared of the cops probably. The brown haired man giggled in low, dumb tones. I know who they should be scared of, he said. The blonde man nodded in acknowledgement, put the car in park and stepped out into the warm, muggy night. He inhaled deeply, the scent of damp grass and something else, something starchy and sweet floating through the air. They walked over to the toilet block and leaned against the cinder block wall. The brown-haired man caught himself staring at the blonde man, taking in his outfit. He was wearing a white top, too small and too wide for his frame, so his belly button was just visible, along with a pair of short, cut-off jean shorts. Mate, what are you wearing? The brown-haired man asked. The blonde man chuckled and said, This? He gestured at his outfit in a theatrical way. This is the bait. Sure enough, the bait was working. From behind the trees and cars around them, men began to emerge, materialising out of the darkness. The men weren't what you'd picture as stereotypical gay men, and very few of them wore anything that resembled the blonde man's bait outfit. Some were big and burly, some were tradies, dressed in high-vis shirts. Some were older, well-dressed men in woolen cardigans, chinos and loafers. The blonde man exhaled as he saw the other men approaching, pushed his upper back against the wall and his groin out, making his body scream, come and get it. The brown-haired man wasn't sure what to do, so he stood awkwardly with his hands in his pockets, his small erection still straining against the elastic waistband of his pants. The blonde man had a target in mind. No one too big, no one too burly. He continued surveying the men while the brown-haired man watched on in wonder at these people, standing around and chatting. This wasn't how the blonde man had explained it would be. The way the blonde man described a beat was like a massive orgy, men emptying themselves into one another willy-nilly. The idea had kind of excited him. But this? This was a seemingly normal gathering. A regular group of men having regular conversations. Hey there, m mind if I get past? Asked a younger man, about five foot eight inches in height. He had dark, short hair and slightly hooked features, probably an Italian or Middle Eastern background. His voice was quite low for his height and stature. The brown man looked at him with a furrowed brow. What's the password? said the blonde mulleted man with a wink. The younger man laughed and said, I'm not sure, mate. But if you want to be cheeky, maybe we should take it elsewhere. The brown-haired man's pulse began to race at the suggestion. Could it really be this easy to solicit sex? He thought, amazed at the simplicity of the exchange. Yep, we've got a car over there. Let's go. 
The blonde man gestured towards the maroon charger and the pair began walking over to the car. The brown-haired man remained leaning against the wall, internally panicking over what they were about to do. Hey, Bev, said the blonde mulleted man, calling through the window in the driver's side of the charger. You coming or what? Then he turned to the dark-haired man with a sneer. He's a virgin, so he's probably nervous. Yep, I'm coming, called out Bev, before he ran to the car and hopped in. The trio drove off together in a cloud of dust. Back at the hospital, Kathy sat shakily as a doctor stood over her, examining the marks where she had fallen onto the rocky floor of the cavern. She was removed from the crime scene where she had been discovered, pale-faced and shaking, standing over Corey's unconscious body, attempting to shake him awake. Has anything like this happened to you before? The doctor asked. He was an older man with grey hair that grew in a thick bushel around his head. The top was bare. Shiny. No, never. We both kind of felt dizzy, then then he stared at me. I, I remember everything going wavy, like we're on a boat. Then then I remember falling, she said. Kathy's words were strong and while she felt shaky, she could feel her strength quickly return to her. Something did feel amiss though, a little different. She reached back and swiped her hand over the small bump on the back left side of her head. Do you know what happened to us? She asked. Don't worry. We'll figure it out, the doctor replied. In the room next to Kathy's, laying on a hospital bed, was Corey, still in his dream world. The charger had pulled into a lay-by about four kilometres down the road, close to a small park on the Torrens River. The trio was still sitting in the car, Bev, or Bevan in the back seat, sat alone while the blonde-haired man and the young dark-haired man chatted in the front. So, uh, do you go to the pavilion often? asked the blonde man, slowly pulling his fingers through his oily mullet. Yeah, a fair bit actually. It's kind of desperate, but you know, uh, desperate times, said the dark-haired man before turning to Bevan in the back seat and stretching out his hand. I heard your name before. Thought it might be fair to give you mine. Roger, he said. Bevan took his hand and gave it a quick, firm shake. He could feel his cheeks flush and pinpricks of sweat began to emerge on his forehead. His erection gave a pulse. Nice to meet you, he mumbled. The blonde man smiled at him, his eyes calculating. He seemed to enjoy watching Bevan squirm. Maybe he knows thought Bevan. Roger turned to the blonde man and made the same introductions. The blonde man's name was George. The trio sat in the car for a while, making small talk about the weather and other Adelaide beats, before George turned so he could face both Bevan and Roger at the same time. Reckon it's time for a bit of a play? He asked, a sneer stretching up the side of his face. Roger nodded eagerly, Bevan clenched his lips into a flat line, making a face that said, if we have to. 
George hopped out of the car first and Roger followed quickly behind. They'd been gone about two minutes when Bevan decided to follow. It was pitch black outside and he could barely see anything. In the distance he could hear the slow sloshing of the Torrens River and George speaking in an effort to be quiet. Suddenly, Bevan heard Roger scream, What, what are you doing? There was a loud grunting sound and a splash as the sound of a body hitting the water rang out across the field. Instinctively, Bevan crouched down, his mind racing as to whether George had actually thrown a man into the water. Bev had signed up for some good old-fashioned fag bashing, not to potentially drown someone. More yelling broke out through the darkness. No, 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 put me down, put me down, goddammit. Then another splash, and then there was silence. Bevan stayed in his crouch position, his senses heightened. He felt he could hear the wind kissing each blade of grass, each tiny tinkle as the water in the torrent surged forward. Who threw George in the water? Bevan considered. His limbs were still locked with fear. He was picturing Roger stepping out of the water, sopping wet and throwing him in, delivering his own kind of karma. Coming to the resolution that he had to do something, Bevan stood up and ran back to the car, hoping that George would have a torch somewhere in there. He started rummaging through each of the car's nooks and crannies before popping the boot where he was greeted with a black waterproof dolphin torch. He clicked it on and off in quick succession to be sure it worked. Then, sweeping it in wide arcs towards the river, began making his way towards where he heard the two men being thrown in. The field was empty and as he approached the banks, he half expected to see the sopping wet figures of George and Roger stumbling towards the car with squelching shoes. But nothing. Bevan reached the water's edge and panic began to set in. He tried to remain calm while sweeping the light over the surface of the water, but it began to creep up on him a prickling that weighted his stomach and tingled the skin on his cheeks. The panic fueled him and he began running down the river, the city lights of Adelaide gleaming in front of him. There had been heavy rain, over 85 mil, earlier that day and the river was surging, running almost faster than Bevan was. As the city got closer, Bevan began to feel his chest tighten. He wasn't an unfit man, but the speed at which he was running, combined with the difficult terrain, was making it tough for him to keep pace. With breath catching fire in his lungs and a pounding head, he continued running. Back in the real world, at the hospital, Kathy realised her strength had returned to normal, and while she was still a little shaky at what had happened, she finally had a chance to go over what she had seen, or dreamed, while she was unconscious. Laying on the cool stone ground of the cavern. The whole scene seemed so clear to her and kind of familiar, like she was living in a story she had heard or read before, but she couldn't quite recall and place the names and faces. Kathy dropped her head into her hands and closed her eyes, straining in the darkness to recall the names of the men she had dreamed about. Clinton? No, couldn't be Clinton. Something to do with Elaine, perhaps? No, it was close but didn't seem quite right either. Then, 
Clear as day, one name fluttered to her. The name escaped her lips before she had a chance to contain them. John Bunting. She clamped her lips shut and pulled her phone out of her pocket. She pulled up Google and typed in the name. Phone service wasn't the greatest in the hospital, so after a few moments of anxious waiting, the results finally started to pile in. The next word that fell out of her mouth wasn't a name at all. It was simple and described her feelings perfectly. Fuck. Feeling as though he was scouring the breath from the very bottom of his lungs and feeling the exhaustion pounding at him, Bevan finally stopped under a bridge to catch his breath. He let the torch fall to the ground and doubled over, one hand on his thigh and other on one of the metal supports. He wheezed and wheezed, feeling as though no matter how much air he managed to get into his lungs, it wasn't enough. Finally, his head began to spin and the wheezing breath began to catch. He felt his stomach boil over and erupt, the yellow bile surging out of his mouth in a straight line across the concrete pylons of the bridge. As his breathing began to settle, he noticed a torch shining on something in the water, something bobbing against one of the concrete pylons. It was round, white, with dark hair fanning out around it, a head face down in the dark river. It's Roger, he realised, and without thinking he leapt into the surging water, fighting against the current towards the pylon. Arriving there, he pulled Roger's head out of the water and began kicking backwards towards the shore in a survival backstroke. With a strength that didn't feel like his own, he yanked the young man out of the river, placed him on his back, and checked his airways. Roger wasn't breathing. Bevan placed his mouth over Roger's and began administering CPR. Barely ten seconds after the first breath, Roger began to splutter. He coughed and looked up at Bevan with ragged breaths. Bevan stood up and looked over Roger's body, examining for cuts or anything else that could have harmed him further. Roger's ankle was on a funny angle, but apart from that, he seemed fine. Did you see George in the water? What happened? asked Bevan. A couple on an early morning jog heard the commotion and began making their way towards the river. I... Roger coughed. He... He couldn't form words, not yet, so instead pointed back towards the water. Bevan picked up the torch and swung the beam over the rolling black river. On the far bank was another body, face down and floating limply, a white crop top snagged on a branch. George! screamed Bevan, before plunging back into the river. He surged through the water towards his friend, and as soon as he could feel his feet sink into the sticky black mud on the riverbed, clumsily ran through the water, spluttering George's name and crying. Reaching him, Bevan ripped him off of the branch and flipped him over onto the muddy bank. George's blue face stared back at him, eyes wide open. He seemed bloated, like he'd been laying in the water for days instead of minutes. It was apparent that he was beyond CPR, beyond any form of help. Tears began to prickle his eyes and as a tremendous pain began taking over him, Bevan lowered his face to his French chest and began to cry, 
sobbing out huge fat tears. After some time, he sat back up, grabbed his friend's hand and brought it to his mouth in a light kiss. As he pulled it away, he could see something carved into his index finger, a scar he'd never noticed before. Two words carved in large, crude lettering, looking like a punishment rather than an accident. Bevan's eyes travelled from left to right as he started to read the word. It read, T. A. M. A. N. As his eyes travelled to the first letter of the second word, he felt the energy drain from him and slumped down unconscious over his dead friend's body. To be continued. Thanks for listening. For more stories, visit www.thepublicbook.com or you can follow me on Twitter if you want. My handle is at DRopeKeyAuthor. Bye.